Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. Welcome to Me Church. (laughs) Beverage is in the cup holder next to you. Where it's all about you. I wish uh, that commercial were just a spoof, but for many churches, it's all too true, right? We start coming to church with good intentions, but somewhere along the line, we get comfortable and we kind of lose focus, coming to believe that the church exists to serve us, rather than us serving God and each other. (laughs) And the church becomes more actually like a club, (laughs) which in its worst forms creates an environment of cliques, right? Which are actually focused on keeping people out, rather than inviting newcomers in. Well, if you're new, you've come at a great time because we're actually working through our church family covenant, trying to describe what it means to truly belong to a church that operates like a family, one that's open and invitational to those who aren't here yet. And as we said last week, membership in a church is about a lot more than stuffing envelopes, flicking a few coins in the offering plates, or voting for a budget. Our metaphor for our congregation is a family. We're designing this church to actually function like a home, and the emphasis is relational, How we relate to one another, how we talk to one another, actually how we speak and treat one another. The focus is on one another, not ourselves. And our idea of membership in this church is qualitative in nature. It's not about numbers, you know, uh, fannies in the seats, nickels in the plates, but, but about relationships. And we've grounded our church family covenant in the book of Ephesians. That's really where we're getting all of this from, where Paul writes a letter to the young church of Ephesus, what it means to believe and belong to the family of God. And so I'll invite you to take your pew Bible, there are blue Bibles there, and flip to the book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament, about uh, page 1914, if you are using the pew Bible, for those of you who want to cheat, that's okay. We're going to bring up the lights a little for you. And let's just see, by way of review... Those of you who have been paying attention, you know that Paul is writing this letter from where? Jail, good, prison. And he's writing this young church, describing what it means to belong to the family of God. And the first thing he noted that was God's family was marked by a distinctive sense of, does anyone remember? Queen Latifah made a song about it. Unity, U-N-I-T-Y, right? Okay, not me first, and then you, but actually us. Together, unity. 
That was the first point of emphasis in our covenant, a copy of which actually is in your bulletin, right? Safeguarding the unity of my church. And we said that we make a commitment to do that really in three ways. And the first one is by loving one another. Be humble and gentle, Paul wrote. Be patient with each other. Actually, bearing with one another. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. That actually in a family, we're going to have faults and flaws. We're going to step on one another's toads. And that calls for patience. Because of our love for one another. We relate to one another in our moments of weakness. The same way that God related to us when our lives were wrecked with sin. We show grace. We show kindness. Patience with one another's sins and weaknesses. And actually, forgiveness. The second part we said is that actually our our family covenants together by refusing to gossip. That's the second way that we safeguard the unity. If you remember that, Paul taught in Ephesians 4 and verse 29, he said, said, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And we realize that's not profanity, he says. Only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. In other words, language that tears others down. We don't actually celebrate a brother or sister's failure. But only talk to one another about what builds others up. We refuse to spread gossip or rumors. Remember that? prayers. To allow divisions or factions, suspicions to divide us. No, we don't do it. We refuse to do it. But we do make a commitment to do one thing when there is conflict. And that is to resolve conflict quickly. Jesus gave us a prescription for this in Matthew 18. He said, if a brother sins against you, you go and you show him his fault. Just, everyone, between the two of you, right? It's not sweep it under the rug, ignore it, you know, make nice. No, go. Confront, but with the humility and the patience and the kindness. When you do step on one another's toes, which is guaranteed, we're going directly to that person and lovingly confront them with the offense. Not in order to be right, but to be reconciled. We don't broadcast it or get others to gang up. We keep the static just between the two of us and sort it out. And it's great because we saw in Ephesians 4, Paul got real gritty. He's like, yeah, you're going to get angry. You're going to get upset with one another, but that's okay. Anger is not sin. But in your anger, don't sin. And don't give the devil a foothold. So say the difficult thing. Put yourself out there. Offer apology when necessary. Listen to correction. And extend forgiveness easily and readily when asked. Because in some day you'll be in need of it. Now, why do we covenant to do this as a family? Because, as Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. U-N-I-T-Y. One of the most important virtues God wants his family to nurture with each other. It's not about me. It's not just about you. It's about us working together to make God's presence visible in this world. Now, what's interesting is that unity does not equal sameness. As many people think. That's actually the world's version of unity. You're unified if you all kind of look the same way. If you all like the same worship style. That's unity. (laughs) Or if you're into the same stuff. Or you have similar personalities, interests, or abilities. Nope. When folks are required to share all the same interests, philosophies, and strengths, that's actually called a cult, not a church. (laughs) See, within Jesus' church, although there's unity, there's supposed to be tremendous diversity of gifts, abilities, and interests. And God intentionally designed his family that way for a specific purpose. Now let's take a look at Ephesians, because that's the next theme that Paul gets onto in here. Ephesians 4, he writes, I'm looking at the message paraphrase here, just as a way of review. In verse 4 he says, You were all called to travel on the same road in the same direction, so stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. 
And he goes, you have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is in present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. So Paul just calls out all that we share in common spiritually. But now look at verse 7. But that doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ... Each of us is given his or her own gift. Now he expands on this. Skip down to verse 11 here. He says, Christ handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher to train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. That's where Ephesians 4.13 ends. Now, a couple observations. Paul says, he just says it flat out. He goes, unity does not equal sameness. Doesn't mean you all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of your God and your Lord and Savior Jesus, each of you has her own gift. True oneness is actually when people with a diverse set of gifts, abilities, come together to serve in the pursuit of a cause that's bigger than themselves. They don't join a club that's all about conformity. (laughs) No, true Christian community actually never, ever does violence to individuality. That's always a mark of a a good cult, (laughs) but not a good church. Rather, it connects your one-of-a-kind talents to the unique gifts of others. And the linking occurs, serves a much larger purpose than your own edification. It's to make what Paul calls the body of Christ. Christ's body, the church, visible on this earth in a -a one-of-a-kind way. That's literally what the church is. The visible presence of Christ on the earth. The hands and feet of Jesus in this world. In verse 12, you see, Paul refers to Christ's body, the church. And and the idea is after Jesus ascended to heaven, he left it to us, his followers, the local church, to complete his mission and represent his love and healing to a broken world. And that's like a massive responsibility that we're charged with when we enter the family of God. It's actually truly overwhelming. It's like, how in the world can little old me possibly do that? That's the point. You can't do it alone. With just your one gift. If you can preach or you can play guitar or teach children, that's great. But you can't do it alone. It must be combined with the unique gifts of other people. And together, Christ's presence will be made visible in the world in a a powerful way. Paul goes on to say that the Holy Spirit has given each one of us special gifts for building up the church. That is the body of Christ, right? He says, Christ handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher to train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church. Now, I want you to be careful here. (laughs) Because this is where folks typically make an artificial distinction between clergy, the guy with the collar, (laughs) and laity, the people in the pews, right? That is, there are people who are paid to do the work of the church. You're one of them, Tim. You're a professional. (laughs) And the rest of us are, I mean, what does that make you? Customers? I don't know. There are those who get paid to be church workers and then those in the pews. In other words, Tim works for the church. He's a pastor. He's building the body. He's doing the work of the church. That's his job. And look at all those official sounding titles, right? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. Many of you have a business card that says, you know, Mark, uh, prophet of God. You know, (laughs) not many of you. And most think that these are like specialists who do the work of the church. Not so. 
What is their job, according to Paul? Look at the verse. To train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church. That is, the job of church leaders is to actually train, equip, and unleash the rest of the body to use their gifts in a -a one-of-a-kind way. The NIV translation, if you look at verses 11 and 12 and compare it, it says, It was he, Christ, who gave some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, my primary job as a pastor is actually to equip and unleash you. (laughs) Think about that. To recognize that each one of you has a -a one-of-a-kind gift that God has actually strategically positioned you within his family right here at Liquid to strengthen and serve his church in a -a one-of-a-kind way. You see, there are no accidents in God's family. There are no unplanned births, not randomness. Each one of you is here to fulfill a specific purpose in our community. And that's why it's our job to help identify your gifts so you can strategically serve God and other brothers and sisters in your church family. In fact, according to Paul, just look at this real quickly. The last verse, verse 13 there, it's not just about building up the church, right? Because that would be very self-aggrandizing, like, oh, that's, yeah, sure, your first point is serve the church. Great, makes your job easier. (laughs) But look at 13, verse 13. It says, serving is almost the primary key way that we mature as believers, actually become Jesus like Jesus himself. He says, um, working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, unity, efficient and graceful in response to God's son. This is out of what God's done to us. Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without fully Alive like Christ. That's why the second piece of our liquid church family covenant reads, I commit myself to God and my brothers and sisters to serve the ministry of my church. And you have this green in your insert in your bulletin. You can track along with us. Again, if you're new here, this is a great moment to come to see kind of what our church is about. But it's to serve the ministry of our church in three ways. The first one is by identifying my gifts. The second, by developing a servant's heart. And the third, by serving others strategically. It's an important qualifier, strategically. So the first core value is about safeguarding the unity, creating a kind of safe and harmonious environment. We're grounded in mutual love for one another. The second core value, strategic service, is about putting that love into action. Actually using your gifts and your strengths to serve other people and strengthen the influence of this church body. So let's take a look at this first aspect of identifying my gifts. And our orienting text for this is Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. I'll invite you to turn to it. Um, Keep your finger in Ephesians. We're going to kind of drop back and forth here. But in Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul again expands on this idea of each of us having unique gifts and abilities. Paul writes, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. The gift, literally. You are given, that's what grace means, a gift. You're given a gift. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Stop right there. Now, this is interesting. Because Paul's highlighting a couple of things here about the special talents and abilities that God bestows on each of his children. 
And the first thing is just that, that, that whatever special gift or ability that you have, whether it's playing the drums or making people feel welcome or accepted or working with children, that gift comes directly from God himself to you. It is given by him to you and exists for his glory, not your individual success. Now, I know, that cuts against our like Western individualistic mindset. Wait, my gift is not for my own aggrandizement? I make money off this. No, <laughs> no. You exist for God's glory, not your own. <laughs> and actually, the natural talents and abilities he's placed in you were strategically placed in you so that you could lead and build up his family in a one-of-a-kind way. Not the way that I do, or not the way that your girlfriend does, or that your buddy can, but in a way that's uniquely you. We do not all have the same gifts, thank God. (laughs) Or else the family dynamic would simply be one of competition. Instead, God's given unique gifts like these to serve the body, and he starts naming some. The first one is what? Prophesying. Now, here's the deal, prophesying. In scripture, prophesying is often synonymous with the word preaching. You don't see preaching a ton in the New Testament. You will see prophesying. It's not necessarily predicting the future, as we usually think. That sometimes is the meaning in the New Testament. I prophesy this is going to happen, a prediction. That's great. That's a gift. But often, frequently, it's used in preaching. That is giving, expressing the message of God to people. In that context, I'm the main prophet <laughs> designated in this family. Now, that, now, understand what that means. That's why I'm going to qualify this, because you're like, oh, I knew it was going to turn into a cult. Here it is. (laughs) What that means is I'm the guy in the family charged with the regular responsibility of expressing the word of God each week. I don't speak for God, but I do preach his word. These are not my ideas or constructs of like what would make a good effective church. These are God's ideas. That's why we appeal to the Bible. This is his message to us in Ephesians and Romans. But I'm the guy who preaches or prophesies, delivers God's message to the body. That's my gift. There's a distinction between that and the second gift, teaching. Look at that second one there, teaching, all right? And when you think about teaching, I think of it, several people come to mind. You might, oh, you can't even see them in this picture. Take a look in the far right. Does anyone recognize that nose? That's Dave Brooks. <laughs> How many of you knew that was Dave Brooks? Dave teaches our Crown Financial Money Management class on Sunday afternoons before the service. And Dave is a natural-born teacher. <laughs> he has deep compassion for people. He has a natural desire to want to help them improve their lives, walk closer to God, and actually has a very, you, you, you spend time in the class, you know, he has a gift for naturally teaching how to apply God's truth to real life. In this case, financial principles for managing money God's way. Think of our teachers at Liquid Kids. I think of Diana Berger, who works with Liquid Kids. She's one of the most self-sacrificing, giving women who simply, she just loves kids. Loves being around them, loves being with them, nurturing them, introducing them to the love of Jesus, and teaching them stories and lessons from God's work. Teaching. That's another gift in God's family, Paul says. But there's a third one, he says, right? He says, serving. (laughs) And I can think of so many different faces that I couldn't quite fit them all up on the screen, but I wanted to take a butt shot at Chuck. Because not of you recognize Chuck's face, but maybe actually none of you will know Chuck. None of you know Chuck, and he's one of the most important people in this church. You'll never meet him. You know why? Because he doesn't come to the 5 o'clock. He comes to 7.30. You know why? Not because he's a late, a late owl, but because he's taken as his personal job to collect every Bible that you're holding in your hands, stack them, going the right way, organize them, and put them away every week. He's here until 10.30 at night, stacking Bibles. That's 
serving. And we have a whole army of people who serve selflessly every week to make our church a welcoming and inviting place to worship and learn. I think of like Nate Hildebrand and Dawn Awan, right? I mean, if you've come just once, you'd probably know their faces. Nate's been the leader of our hospitality team over the last year. And, and, and if you came at 4 o'clock, if you came early, you'd see Nate here. He's, he's putting the Bibles out so you can get them. He stands at the door handing out bulletins with Heidi and greets folks with a, with a smile, a handshake or a greeting, get, get you a bulletin, get you seated so you know where you're going, get you seated comfortably. It's not a drag to him to come early. He loves to do it. Why? Because he has a gift. His gift is for serving. And it's actually, you know, a beautiful thing when you work with folks wired who love to serve, looking for ways, eager to help out and make ministry happen. Now, what's the next thing that Paul cites? Because this is one of those gifts that, again, is often kind of, you know, amorphous. Encouragement. (laughs) So you're like, well, I don't like to do heavy lifting. (laughs) But I'm I'm sort of friendly. I seem to pick people up. I think of Vanessa or I think of Warren. (laughs) who serve on our newcomers team. Every week, without fail, they're downstairs. They actually come early before the second service, and they sit downstairs to welcome our first-time visitors, find out where they're from, see if they have a question, encourage them if they're feeling alone, or just help them find a friend to plug in. You know it can be overwhelming here. And that's a crucial role in our family, especially as we try to be an encouragement not just to one another, but to new folks who perhaps just finding their way back to God for the first time. Now understand, not not all gifts are relational, Paul teaches. Take a look at them so far. Prophesying, teaching, serving, encouraging, right? This is all Romans, Romans 12 gifts. But it's interesting, he writes in the next phrase, he says, if a man's gift is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously, contributing. And this is a little bit different than stacking the Bibles. It's kind of interesting. I was like, oh man, I... Where do you get at this thing? And I was like, you know what? I, my gosh, I know exactly where I get at it. I got a random out of nowhere email from a man in our church last week out of nowhere. And it just had three lines to it. I, I know him. We're, we're friends. We don't talk a ton. But he just sent this email out of nowhere and said, Tim, are there specific needs right now among the congregation? And when you get that, you just don't know exactly what the person's talking about. He said, especially with single moms or orphans. Because I know that's an area of special concern to both God and Liquid. What can I do financially? You don't get a lot of emails like that. Can I say that? Not a lot of people say, I have the gift of giving. <laughs> and I, I replied back, because I, I don't, generally don't think about that kind of stuff too much. I'm not a big numbers guy, but I was just, I was just like, hey, look, I, I told him about a couple certain situations, not numbers or anything, but just situations that I know are, are among the congregation. And he said, it was great because his, his email back was even shorter than his three-sentence email. His, his email back was, was not even two sentences, it was just fragments. He said, no problem, look for something in the mail. Well, I open up the envelope this week. There's no note. It's a check for $7,000. Why? Did we solicit it? Nope. What would cause him to send it? Just an extra couple thou, I guess, lying around the house doubtful. It's because God has given this brother a special gift of giving, of contributing financially, and guess what? He's exercising his gift. The Spirit lays it on his heart to give, and he acts on it. He asks about needs within the body, our family, and those needs begin getting met. It's a beautiful thing. You see this? It takes a diverse group of people, each with his own or her own unique gift, to make a fully functioning family. Leadership is one of the last ones that Paul notes here. I mean, you typically think of gung-ho leaders who are all about vision, takes the hill. Well, the person in our community that we, I think Glenn and I agree, have the most effective gift of leadership, works behind the scenes, is a woman. (laughs) 
Erica Runyon. You, you see her, you know, most of you see her just giving announcements each week, you know, hey, make sure you like, you know, to go to Colorado Cafe for line dancing. What you don't know <laughs> is that she's a director. Well, you might know that she's director of our small groups ministry, but what that entails is having weekly contact with over 40 group leaders and placing about 220 small group participants, organizing them, kind of uh, you know, arranging each group. She administrates the time and the places of meetings and works with multiple curriculums. And she does this thing effortlessly. She may, I know, Glenn's like, she's just shaking his head. It makes Glenn in my head spin. The only thing we can see is this is why she has this unhealthy addiction to Diet Coke. You know, she's got to be like jacked up. She's a gifted administrator. It comes naturally. It doesn't take anything out of her. Organizer, manager of people and group. That's a gift. And she started exercising it long before she ever joined our staff. She joined our church family, heard we needed help with our children's program, put her talents to work there serving children first. Leadership. Some of you have that gift. The last thing Paul cites is Mercy. And by the way, this is, this is not a complete list of, of all gifts. But he's just given us a broad sampling of the kinds of gifts used to encourage God's people and build up his body. I was working, walking out of an elders meeting actually this past Tuesday with Mike Leahy. And it was funny, we were late. We thought we were alone in the place. But who comes walking out of the teen room? It's actually Ann and Frank Ellerbush. You guys know Ann and Frank? Some of you know Ann and Frank? They usually sit right about over. There he is. I see you, Frank. Remember? You scared us. Mike and I thought we were alone. He's like, whoa, it's Frank and Ann. And they come out, and they've got, like, cushions, and they've got blankets and stuff. And we're like, what are you guys doing? This is like, are you, like, having a sleepover? Is this, like, some weird marital thing? Like, what is going on here? What are you doing in our church? And they're like, no, we lead our small group here. They lead a TC. And the TC, the TC, transformational community that they lead, is specially dedicated to working with people through their past wounds and their hurts. So they can experience the kind of freedom that God has for them. And I've been in a TC, and I came out of TCs, and my face would be ashen. It would be drained. <sighs> All that emotional energy and hugging people and like, oh, really carrying people with deep hurts. That's, that's exhausting for some people, not for Ann and Frank. You, you would have think they just, you know, they just drank like a case of Diet Coke. They were like, it was awesome. And their faces were beaming and everything. It's a beautiful thing because they love walking with people to get freedom from their hurts and their past wounds. Mercy, that's a gift. So take a look at this list, okay, of gifts for a moment and try to imagine the kinds of people who would have each one, right? I mean, prophets are often bold and articulate. Servers, those in ministry, are faithful and loyal. Teachers are clear thinkers. Encouragers know how to motivate others. Givers are generous and trusting. Leaders are good organizers, managers. Those who show mercy are caring people and just happy to give their time to others. I think you'd agree it'd be difficult for one person to embody all these gifts, wouldn't it? (laughs) An assertive prophet would not usually make a good counselor. That's why Glenn keeps me away from his office. (laughs) He doesn't want me screwing it up. And a giver might be generous, but actually might fail as a leader or administrator. What Paul's inviting us to do is identify our own gifts and then ask how we can use them to build up God's family. The point is you can't do it alone. But together, we come into relationship with others who have different ones from ours, and we discover wholeness completion, unity, not sameness, but your strengths actually balancing my weaknesses. Her abilities making up for her deficiencies. And together in serving, we build and complete the church of Jesus Christ. And that's really the reason we serve. Because this is Jesus' church. And he's our model. His life lived out through ours. That's our goal for gathering. We follow his lead. And so that's why we covenant to serve the ministry of our church, secondly, by developing a servant's heart. Which could simply be rephrased... By developing a heart like Jesus. 
want you to turn now to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. It's funny, but in some ways, serving is not about gifts. Rather, it's more about attitude. And Paul counsels the Philippian church this way. He says, your attitude, the spirit of this thing, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself, everyone, nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, this is the thing, because some of you right now are starting to feel guilty. <laughs> I always sat through messages like this. I was like, oh, man, it's on serving. Here it comes. I'm not doing enough. I should be doing more. They're going to highlight all the great people and those who are like, you know, bench warmers. Uh-uh. <laughs> no guilt. No guilt allowed in Jesus' church. In other words, we don't serve out of grim duty or obligation. Okay, I have to give something back. Wrong. We serve because it's the primary way we become like Christ. As important as devotions are, as praying, as studying God's word, serving is one of the essential disciplines to grow in Christ's likeness, the goal of life. The essence of Jesus' person was to be a servant who sacrificed his life on behalf of others. And think about that. Paul's right now here. He says, even though Jesus was fully God, think, you're God. He didn't lord his position over other people, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, a middle-class carpenter who had an outward focus, whose personality was marked by humility and service to those he was in community with. The most striking example of this probably is found in John chapter 13, and I'll invite you to put a finger in the Bible there, turn to page 1743, because This is where Jesus performs perhaps one of the most vivid examples of the humility required for authentic servanthood. John chapter 13. You may recall that this passage shows us why. (laughs) If the message of Christ is to be taken seriously, the gospel stinks. (laughs) That is the doing of it smells like feet. Let's read this aloud, John 13. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he'd come from God and he was returning to God. So what did he do? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus, Peter is such a wiseacre, it's amazing. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body's clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. As I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you think about them. No. You should be saying, objection. You'll be blessed if you what? Do them. Okay. This is one of the most demonstrative illustrations Jesus provides for what the Christian life is to be dedicated to. It's about serving God and then serving one another. What's the motivation for it? This is not duty performed out of ritual or obligation, but out of love. That's what Jesus says this is about in verse 1, right? I love this. It's, it's the intro to Jesus washing feet. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Are you ready to see the full extent of my love? And he takes his shirt off. I won't do it here. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. And he takes, his, he takes his shirt off and he ties a towel around his waist, it says. In other words, he began performing what was considered in his day one of the lowliest, most degrading household tasks that was left to the slave of the household. Verse 4, it says, when Jesus got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and that communicated one thing to everyone who saw it. You're assuming the posture of a slave. That's how slaves in the house dressed. Everyone else had tunics and robes. But the one who actually was shirtless and took a towel out and wiped someone's feet with it, they're not a free man. They're a slave. Not even just a servant, but a slave, totally humbling himself. That's how household servants dress. And, and when you think about it, when they received people who had been traveling, you know, if you're, you, had a, you had a house and someone was coming to see you, I mean, th- this was not, you know, you know I'm on hey, I'm gonna exit 36, come there, I'll wash your feet. No cars, <laughs> no elevators, nothing. These are people traveling by foot through the dusty roads of the ancient Middle East and it destroyed people's feet. And so it was traditional for the owner of a house to greet his guests with this very key task of hospitality. And it says Jesus poured water into a basin, got down and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And this rocked the disciples' world. Because they had find this was just before, remember, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's been with them three years. And they'd come to believe that the message of Jesus, we believe, you are the Lord. You're the Son of God. God in the flesh among us. And what's the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God of the universe do? He stoops to serve. To wash their calloused, cracked, dirty, sweat-soaked feet. And the message of Jesus couldn't be any more clear. Your God is a servant at heart. Get this? Do you get a sense of how upsetting this was to the disciples? I mean, Peter the big mouth is the first one to object. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet, right? But Jesus is firm in his response. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, unless I cleanse your sinful heart, which is full of pride, arrogance, and self-seeking ambition, it's all about me, and make your heart like mine, which is full of humility and self-sacrifice, you have no part in my father's family. He who wants to follow the king must bend their knee. But not in the posture of the elite noble, but the posture of a humble servant, because that's what my family is all about. 
That must have been hard for the disciples to swallow. I mean, the very act Jesus gave them to sum up what it means to cultivate a servant's hearts. Can you actually think of anything more unglamorous, more humiliating, lowly, real dirty work, a job no one volunteers for? Verse 12, Jesus asks them, he just goes, I love this, he says, you guys even understand what I have done for you? In other words, Jesus didn't wash his disciples' feet. Now, you guys be nice to one another. His, 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 his goal was far greater to extend his mission on earth after he was gone. And so he makes his command explicit in verses 14 and 15. He says, okay, I'll spell it out. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You don't hear this verse quoted a lot. <laughs> Who wants to wash feet? Take a quick glance right now over at your neighbor. Look at them and say, unity. And now look at their feet. Look at their feet. Look at it. I know. It's awkward, right? Ah! Yet Jesus says the extent to which we're willing to humbly serve the most basic lowly needs of our brother or sister will determine how much we truly belong in his family. I've set you an example. You should do as I've done for you. It's a model, a pattern I've set in serving one another. Follow my lead. It's amazing, but... Um, do for one another what I've done for you. And I'll admit, this is a very diff- different model of leadership. It's, it's difficult for me to, to truly like embrace <laughs> of what it means to uh, truly achieve status and recognition, at least in the eyes of God. Because it's the reverse of how the world defines leadership, isn't it? Which is all about exercising power and authority and getting others to do the dirty work, what you want done. I'll get the other people to do it. But in Matthew 20, Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Uh, 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 uh. Not so with you. Instead, whomever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus says, it's a lifestyle marked by self-expenditure. Rather than self-aggrandizement. There's there's no symbol that communicates that that reality greater than the cross. Jesus' ultimate act of service and sacrifice on behalf of those he loved. Serving. It's the heart of Jesus. It's the essence of God's love. And we're told to imitate him in in this respect. And that's why our church family covenant says that members of this church family commit to serving others strategically. What's kind of cool about the foot washing episode is that Peter, although he didn't get it at first, eventually got it. He objected at first. He was hard-headed and arrogant about it. But after what he witnessed Jesus doing on the cross, you don't understand now, but later you will understand what I'm talking about. (gasps) He's not just washing feet. He's washing my heart with his blood. Peter was a changed man. And so Peter came to embrace the way of the servant, and he passed on Christ's command to us in his first epistle. Peter wrote these words. I love this. Peter wrote this. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Ask me, I know. (laughs) Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That's 1 Peter 4.10. Bit of a change in perspective, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I love it. And Peter, Peter was a loud mouth. He had a lot to say. He actually was a pretty good preacher. But he actually sums it up. He says, he says above all... <laughs> Everything else, love each other deeply. Your family now. Washing feet is no longer beneath you. I thought it was too. (laughs) Offer hospitality without grumbling. Be welcoming an invitation to everyone in the family. And this, each of you, use whatever gift you've received to serve others. This was Peter's admonition to the early Christian church. That's what he said. He said, I'm summing it up for you. And they took it to heart. That's actually the last example uh, in our time together, and I'd like you to turn to that, Acts 6, to close. Because the early church needed some direction. Peter was an apostle. He'd been with Jesus. They were disciples, followers, but they'd never met Jesus in the flesh. And so Peter says, I can tell you from firsthand experience what this is like. Jesus was a servant. I looked at my feet. He washed my feet. I saw him on the cross. I I cut bait and ran on him. (laughs) And now we're going to serve one another. And so the early church, would they take it to heart? I love this. Um, I want to show you an example of what this looks like in real time, in the real life of an ordinary church family, because Jesus means us to have practical application. Not like, right, servanthood. Don't forget to serve. Thanks. Motivational talk, Tim. Great. (laughs) This is supposed to have real traction in a true family led by Christ's spirit, and it should be as gritty and practical and strategic as Jesus' example. Now, look at Acts 6 here, and I want to give you just a little bit of context because it's going to talk about a couple of groups of people. This was the earliest recorded days of the Christian church, okay? This isn't, we're not talking like, you know, Mega church, 10,000 people. This is a smaller church. Jesus has just left. He's ascended to heaven. And these were people who were just learning to do actually what he said. But it wasn't easy. This is a growing church, and they had all sorts of new converts. People who heard the message about Jesus died, he was resurrected, and they were responding to that message. They said, I think I'm going to follow him. They convert to Christianity. But growth in their church family brings us very earthy internal problem. That's what Acts 6 records. Look at this. Uh, Verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, that means new converts, new people to the church, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. Not a lot of unity. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said... It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Just stop there. All right? Just stop there. You see, the early church had this problem, right? Two groups, Hebraic Jews, that means native Jewish Christians. They spoke Jesus' language, Aramaic. It was a Semitic language. And there were Grecian Jews. That means they were Greek-speaking Christians, probably Jews from other lands who converted at Pentecost. And there was an inequity between them. The Greek-speaking Christians complained that their widows were being unfairly treated, right? People were falling through the cracks. It says widows were being overlooked. How? The daily distribution of food. 
They're cutting in line. We're not getting any. <laughs> now, the favoritism probably wasn't intentional, most likely caused by the language barrier. But the disciples understood one thing, that food has the possibility to divide a church like nothing else. <laughs> That's it. This is the first potluck crisis. And so they saw this is a major threat to the unity of the church body. So what do they do? It says in verse 2, the 12, the 12 apostles here, we know we lost one along the way. Judas never graduated. We replaced him. We're back to 12. They gathered all together and they said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So in other words, first, they identified their primary gift and role in the church. That is, they were the preachers and teachers. And they said, we can't neglect the main thing that we're supposed to do, which is teaching these converts the word of God. That's that's the thing that I'm charged with. But this is a vital need in our church that must be met if we're going to fulfill the larger mission of welcoming more people into the family of God. And so they looked around and said, okay, guys, show of hands just here. Um, Who has the gift of waiting on tables? No, they... They don't ask that. In fact, they don't mistakenly, inter- don't mistakenly interpret their words as condescending. This wasn't like, well, it's all about tone. Well, we can't neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. All right? This isn't like a roll of the eyes here. It's so beneath us in parentheses, you know. Rather, what do they say are the necessary qualifications to serve in this way? Brothers, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. It wasn't, well, I have the gift of teaching. She's a gift of leadership. You have the gift of food distribution. Sorry, tough luck, short straw. You go down to the cafeteria. Yeah. You won't find that specific volunteer role in Scripture listed as a different spiritual gift, but they say we actually need people who are so Spirit-filled that they actually have the heart of Jesus in them which is the heart of a humble servant. And they're full of wisdom. That is, they get the bigger picture here. That the way we strategically meet needs within this community is essential to the mission that Jesus entrusted us with. Because that mission is central. Not, no task or service in God's church is too small or insignificant that doesn't require the Spirit's power and discernment. So we will turn this responsibility over to them spirit-filled people, and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. And the proposal pleased the group, and they chose Stephen, who you might know later, had an amazing role in spreading God's church. in a very prophetic, preacherly kind of role. It was an amazing thing. God glorified him in an incredible way. But he started out waiting on tables. <laughs> he presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and what? Laid their hands on them. Get this. They considered the distribution of snacks so essential to the life of the church, that they laid hands on the waiters as a sign of special commissioning and empowerment. Can you imagine laying hands on our ushers and greeters because we consider the distribution of our bulletins as vital to our mission as anything else that's done here? And yet the word of God says, in my larger kingdom mission, it is. You laugh, but it is. For for a first-time visitor, let me ask you this, ask you a quick question. Which role, first-time visitor to church, which role do you think is more critical in them deciding whether they'll return or not? The preacher and the sermon that they hear or the greeter, the hospitality team 
and the way they're treated. What do you think? The way they're treated by our hospitality team. Studies show that the average visitor to a Christian church makes a decision about whether they're going to come back or not in the first seven minutes. When does the sermon start? I don't know, 33 minutes in? That's the point. That's how long, seven minutes, it takes them to sense whether this is a warm, open, and embracing community that actually does care about people who aren't here yet, or whether it's a cold, closed, and calculating club only concerned with the needs of its longtime members. And people pick that up like that. Not based on what I say from the pulpit, but from how you act in the parking lot. I like to say to those who serve on the hospitality team, you write the intro to my sermon every week. You're the first impression newcomers get of our community and what our faith is about. And you establish the context in which they'll be open to the message of Christ or distracted and kind of closed to it. The sermon starts in the parking lot. People decide if this is a place where the love and warmth of God is present long before I ever get up to speak. They're just, they're just waiting to see based on if, am I going to like kind of spin it or not. I already know if it's true or not. We'll see it in the faces of these people. We'll see how they treat me. In other words, our hospitality team and anyone who serves on a volunteer team on Sunday nights must be as spirit-filled and discerning as the guy ministering the word of God. Why? Because relational hospitality and the proclamation of truth go hand in hand. One is a demonstration of the other. It's called strategic service where Christians of different gifts and abilities come together to apply their hearts and their hands to the place of greatest demand. What good would it have been to talk about the love of God? Imagine this for the early church. God loves you. He provides for all people. And the widows go hungry. You see it? It actually would have negated the truth of God. And so these church leaders recruit other leaders to serve strategically in the family and invite them to apply their heart and their hands in the place of greatest demand, in this case, food distribution. And what I love about this passage, look at it, this is how we're going to end, is how it ends. Look at it. Because after seven leaders step forward and say, you know what? You can count on me. I'll do it. I will be the first to serve in this vital way. You'd expect verse 7 to end the passage this way. And so the widows were fed. No one went hungry. And peace was preserved in the church. No. Read verse 7. What was the impact of a group of spirit-filled believers serving in a seemingly insignificant way? So What? The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I love this. Because it shows how serving strategically in a church body, whether it's folding bulletins, getting snacks for the kids, or clicking on the PowerPoint slides, is vital to the larger mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That was the early church's mission. It's our inherited and stated mission. It's in your bulletin. And each of us is called to be part of it by serving strategically. By offering our heart and our hands to the place of greatest demand here. So that the ministry of this church can be as effective as Jesus wants it. On the surface, the snapshot from Acts can seem like an insignificant kind of minor detail. It's like kind of like, all right, making a big deal. Some people got refreshments. What's the big deal? Now... Together, they created the context where the word of God could spread like wildfire. It had a catalytic effect on evangelism. Catalytic. Catalytic. Catalytic? It really kicked them in the butt and got it going. (laughs) Your strategic service creates the context where the word of God 
can spread. Nothing is insignificant. Nothing is small. Paul, in fact, it's funny because people do this actually at our church in ways large and small. Ways that you don't, you don't typically see on Sunday to create that environment here, here at Liquid. Um, it goes from, you know, people who fold the bulletins to, you know, Heidi and her staging team who actually creates the ambiance up here on stage that's done so wonderfully each week. These candles don't magically appear, <laughs> arrange and light themselves. Someone has given their heart and their hands to doing it. Heidi and her team believe that the message we have to share is so important that they're going to spend extra hours on their sunny Sunday afternoon to come create a compelling place to worship. The musicians don't magically appear or show up, use their gifts. Oh, I just sing out of the box. No. They've spent four hours practicing today. And they're volunteers because they want to use their gift to glorify God. You see Nate or Jim passing out the Bibles or Lisa serving in the nursery. Oh, talk about a thankless task. Not in Jesus' realm. No, no, no. You wipe a nose in my name, that's done to me. That's done to me. It's an amazing thing when you look at the people who serve and the insignificant or, or, or unglamorous opportunities that we have. The way Brian and Dave and Dawn and Jim greet people in the foyer or, you know, Andy and the, you know, copying CDs and stuff. Nothing's too small when it comes to serving strategically in the church, not washing feet, not serving food, not putting Bibles away, because it's all done in the shadow of the one we profess to follow, Jesus Christ. It's an upside-down reality of God's kingdom. I know that. You want to lead, you have to serve. To find your life, you have to what? Give it away to others. And we're told that when we do, only one person takes notice. God. Nothing's behind the scenes to God. We, we don't have time, but in 1 Corinthians 12, it's another great place that talks about gifts. Paul talks about the body. He says, literally, let's pretend this is a body. He goes, one of you a foot, one of you has eyes, one of you a mouth, that kind of thing. And he says, what would happen if the eyes said to the feet, I don't need you. So you see everything, but you can't walk anywhere. <laughs> or one of you is ears, but the other is a mouth, and the mouth says, I don't need you ears, so you're just talking, but no one can hear you, <laughs> Right? And he writes in verse 22, he says, listen, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. But God has combined the members of his body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. In other words, the stuff that doesn't get seen, actually, not the prophets, the people who talk every week. In a lot of ways, I get my reward. I, mean, I talk with a lot of you. You know what? That's, that's a more, yeah, upfront kind of thing. It's the ones that are done behind the scenes that God says, line up, because you are doing it unto me. I know it. There's no external reward you're receiving for this. It's funny. When people come up to me and say, thank you, Tim. This, I love liquid. I love liquid. I get people who say that, and I say, you know what? I say, thank you, but don't thank me. I do the easy part. I just show up at four and start talking. And don't stop. <laughs> Go thank the Snells and the members of the worship team who give their whole afternoon to practicing. Thank Heidi, who cleans the wax off the stage. Thank Chuck and Shelda, who put the Bibles away after you leave. Thank Dawn and Warren, who welcome newcomers. Thank Steve and Andy, Joe, who... who, who who toil away in the AV room. Thank Jen. Can everyone thank Jen Rank up there clicking the slides? Thank you, Jennifer, for what you do. Those are the real servants, the heroes of God's church. 
The ones who toil in his name and make the church effective in our mission. In fact, in fact, last week we actually had a dinner between services to thank all of our volunteer teams who had long belated after they'd done it for a year. If you were at that dinner, would you stand up or if you serve on a volunteer team, don't be shy. You people stand up. Stand up. Those of you, come on. Everyone's being shy now. You're like, oh, don't do this to me. Can we thank these people who serve every week? Thank you, guys. Washing feet, showing hospitality, wiping noses at liquid kids. The unglamorous, the unseen is indispensable to the overall body. Deserving a special honor in God's context because they've heard the call of Jesus to serve. They saw his model and they're doers. They've responded. Question, I'll end with this. How about you? I mean, how about you? Are, Are you committed to being more than just an attender? Just a passive observer or consumer. You're willing to actually make a commitment to truly belong to this family by using your gifts to serve others strategically. Because if that's the essence of Christian service, applying your heart and your hands to the area of greatest demand, well, we've got many areas that demand attention and are in need of your gifts. We've actually listed them on the bottom half of the church family covenant. You can notice this. I don't want to ever preach a message like this and people walk away frustrated like, now what am I supposed to do? Whoa. <laughs> You're looking for stuff to do? Use your gifts? Man, do we have it. Take a look at this. It's under, it says, you can count on me. And then you see the verse from 1 Peter 4.10 there. It says, I'd like to use my gifts to serve others by. You'll notice there are all sorts of opportunities. Some of them are, are big deals. Volunteering at Liquid Kids. Teaching our kids. What could be more? Or, I don't have the gift of teaching, but I can wipe noses. And I can schlep crayons. You could check as a helper. Or, I don't even like to talk with kids. Can you hold them? Can you roll a ball to them? In the nursery. (laughs) Check that. Or serving on a host team. You'll notice that we actually are now kind of reorienting a lot of our service teams. And one of them is going to be called the first impressions team. Because we realize it's those people who make the biggest impression on people about whether this is a welcoming church that really embodies the grace of God. Or even at the information table. Just do you have good teeth? Can you smile? That would be great. Lasting impressions. These are people who connect with the newcomers, follow up, because you know how intimidating it is. Maybe you came one time, and it was really intimidating, actually, to come here, because you didn't know anybody. Perfect. You are perfectly qualified for the newcomers team, because that's who they are. 13 people every week with their deer-in-the-headlights look downstairs. And when I walk in the room, they're like, this is the guy who's, like, talking all the... They need real people who know what it feels like to come for the first time. Take a look. You could serve on the staging team. Maybe you could help. Maybe you could come since you go to the 5 o'clock service. And you don't have to do it every week. What if you said, I'll join the setup, staging and the setup team. I'll work with you, Heidi, but I can do it once a month. Would that be all right, Heidi? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Emphatic. There, yeah, that's fine. Or working with media, maybe with the projection team. Can we give Jen Ron a break? <laughs> Jane, Jen almost has her finger sprained now from clicking the slides. We could just use more people. Maybe once a month. Or projection team, CD team, video team. We're going to try to start doing video. We're probably going to do that at our baptism service for the first time so we can actually post testimonies, video of it on the web. We're going to need people like man cameras and things like that. There are a million opportunities to serve. We're going to invite you to actually do something even right now. Do this. Fold this thing in half. I'm going to invite you to tear this off. And you can take a pencil from the pew or borrow your neighbor's pen or something. I'm going to invite you to take a risk one time tonight, and actually consider checking something. Put as many multiple little starred messages. I can only do it one time every other month, and da, 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 that's fine. <laughs> We're not trying to trap you. If you decide you change your mind, that's fine. That's fine. 
Or you have an idea for how you can serve that's not listed. Write it on the back. And you put this in our offering later as your act of worship back to God. Because that's what it is. It's worship. It's not serving me. It's not serving the institution. It's serving God. You won't get roped in forever. If you don't know what to do, we're going to train you. Can we count on you to serve this church and fulfill the mission of Christ together? I want to ask you to please consider it and, uh, and drop your name in the, uh, in the offering basket. Let's, let's stand and we'll close for prayer, okay? Jesus, I want to just thank you for the diversity here. You truly are a God of great imagination, gifting each of us with a one-of-a-kind talent, ability. And some of us, Lord, just, just showing up. It's like 90% of it and being willing to, to reach out and help. Lord, I ask that your spirit would motivate people um, to step forward into this next level of belonging by serving others who are here. Um, I ask that you would chase away any guilt that would motivate that. And I ask that you would you'd chase away any desire to be, I don't know, recognized or noticed or, or celebrated by me because it's not pleasing your leaders here. But I ask they do it because they've caught a vision of your love for them. You washed their feet. You gave your life and washed their heart with your blood. And now we're in your family. Lord, let that be our motivating factor. Continue to consume us and take us from consumers to consumed. Change us into your image, Jesus. We long to be like you. In your name we ask it. Amen.